to you. It's good to see you. My name is Daniel Renstrom. I'm the, the pastor of worship here. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to get to preach to you from Philippians chapter 3. If you're a first time guest with us today, we are right in the middle of a sermon series going through that book together. And so if you do have a Bible, I want to invite you, if you would, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking today at verses 12 through 21. Verse 12 through 21. And we, we are in a, a pretty amazing passage today. And it's, and it's a passage that talks about the Christian life as a race. You know, even though I know this is a little bit of an oversimplification, as people think about the race of the Christian life, they usually put it in two types of categories. And, and the first one is this. The first one is a hobby. Okay. Now, if your hobby is running, then you know what this is like. You like to do it. But you wouldn't necessarily say it defines your life, okay? Maybe you do it when you can, you enjoy it while it's there. But this is the thing, this is the key right here. You're not going to stress over not doing it. You know, so many people look at their walk with Christ as a hobby. And as Pastor Matt Chandler, he's a pastor out in Dallas, Texas, he says this, that going to church is a terrible hobby, (laughs) And I would add to that, being a Christian is a terrible hobby. Look, this morning, you had to wake up early on the weekend. That's a terrible hobby. Why would you want to do that, right? You came here, you're going to have to stand up, you're going to have to sit down, we're asking you to sing, you're going to have to now listen, there's all sorts of things. And then think about this, Christianity puts all kinds of uh, demands on your life. So if you are right now using Christianity like a hobby, then you probably need to get a new hobby, okay? But their other way to see it is as a race that requires our effort and ambition. It's a race that requires effort and ambition. I read an article this past week about a guy named Jeffrey Cam Warrer. I think I'm saying his name correctly. He's a Kenyan gentleman that many projected to be the winner of the New York City Marathon uh, a, couple of, a couple of days ago. And the article talked all about his training regimen, getting ready for this race. Now listen to what Jeffrey did to get ready for this race. For the past three months, he's been running 150 miles a week. Most of those at higher altitudes, friends, that's over 20 miles a day he's been running to get ready for this race. Now, I don't know this guy. I've never seen him race. But I would suspect that if he didn't do a whole lot of training and he just showed up at the start line, he could probably compete. He could probably finish, which is saying more than most of us, right? But Jeffrey doesn't want that. He didn't want that, and so he trained. He worked really hard. Friends, today we're going to see, by God's grace, that Paul sees his life, his walk with Christ, as the furthest thing from a hobby. He's got this all-consuming drive to know and to follow Christ. 
And before we jump into the text, before we read it, I want to give you a one-sentence summary. So something that you can maybe jot down and think. If you want to go back later in the day and just think, okay, what was this sermon about? What did I just learn this afternoon, uh, this morning? So I want to give you this, this phrase, and it's going to be up on the screen. It's, a, it's this, that the Christian life is a race. So get rid of the things that distract you and hold on to the things that help you run. Let me say that one more time. The Christian life is a race, so get rid of the things that distract you and hold on to the things that help you run. Let's go ahead and read the text. If you will, open your Bibles there. Philippians 3. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 14. I think if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the Scripture is going to be up on the screen. Not that I've already reached the goal or am perfected, But I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. But the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So the first exhortation I want us to see this morning is that we should take an honest measurement of our progress. Take an honest measurement of our progress. You know, Paul says a couple of things here. He says, I don't want you to have an inaccurate picture of what I'm really like. I want you to have a real picture here. And he says this a couple different times. Look at your Bible. He says, not that I've already reached the goal. I haven't reached it yet. Then he says, I'm not perfect. Then look at verse 13. He says, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. There's not a hint at all of Paul padding the numbers, so to speak here, okay? He's really, really honest. And he wants us to know, as we read this, I have a long way to go. I have not reached this. I want you also to notice what he's reaching for. So he says it a couple different times. Did you see that? He says a couple times, I haven't reached it. I want to reach it, but I haven't reached it. So then we need to ask this question, what's he talking about? Why does he say this word it a couple times? Well, if you would go backwards, look at verse 10. I want to read that to us because I think it's a description of what Paul is trying to go after. He says this, my goal is to know him. The power, listen to that, power of his resurrection. I want to have the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to his death. I want a cross-conformed life, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. I think this is all that Paul is thinking about. It's probably more, but it's at least this that Paul's thinking about when he says, I want to get it. I want to reach there. I'm not there But I'm looking for that. I want the experience of the power that comes from knowing Christ. I want to have, like he said, I want to have a cross-conformed life. You know, Paul is saying this. He says, I look at what is out in front of me and I want that. But I I also want you to know, I haven't reached it yet. I haven't taken hold of that yet. I think that this kind of humility, don't you find this just striking? Isn't this kind of humility striking? Like how unlike most people does he sound when he says this? How unlike most of us <laughs> does he sound when he says something like this? You know, most of us love for people to know how far we've come in our spur- spiritual journey, don't we? We love for people to know about that. 
But we also have this like finely tuned skill for not making it look like we want people to know that, right? Like, we're kind of like the Navy SEALs of being able to retweet our own praise, right? We have this way of figuring out how we're going to say something and make it look so, so you know all of these good things about me. I want other people to maybe even praise me. Or maybe it's even just a little bit more hidden than that. Do you ever allow people to go on believing things about you that aren't all the way true? Like maybe you just look a little bit better in their eyes. You don't correct them. You don't say anything. But you know, man, that's, that is not true about me. Friend, you know, friends, there's a longing in all of us to not just think very highly of ourselves, but actually want other people to do the same. But listen, as Paul says to us in this passage, he wants none of that. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. He says, I'm not there yet. I haven't reached this. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Some of you might recognize these words. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he should think. Why? Why is Paul commending this to us in Romans 12? And then why is he showing us by example in Philippians chapter 3 that this is not what we should do? This shouldn't be among you. Why is he saying that? Well, I think that Paul is saying this to us because he knows that this is death for us. He knows it's death for us. Look, we might look at the fruit and even though we look at it, we look at it and think that it's going to be amazing for a short time. But he knows it's poisonous. If you eat it, you're going to die. Because we were never meant to be praised like this, friends. We were never meant to hold the weight of that. It's a hindrance to our spiritual growth to be wrapped up in our own spiritual adequacies and for other people to be looking at us and thinking the same thing. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18. You might even want to just jot that down. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Maybe you can go back later on today and just read and think about this a little bit more. Listen to what he says. So Jesus told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone, everyone else. And so he gives us, he sets up this scene. There's two people. One, there's this Pharisee. And what does the Pharisee do? He stands up to pray <laughs> and he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. <laughs> right? You already know it's doomed from the first word, right? I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. And I especially thank you that I'm not like this guy over there. And he's kind of looking down his nose. And then the camera angle turns and you get this guy, right? And this guy, he's the tax collector. And what's he doing? He won't even look up. He just has his head down. It says he's beating his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He won't even look up into the heavens. So then, get this, what does Jesus say? He says this parable and he says, I want you to know that that man, not this man, that man went away justified. Who got the smile from heaven? This guy did. Friends, I want us to, I want us to hear this, that God hates our religious and our spiritual self-congratulating. He hates it. He wants us to be so free from it. It's a weight. It's a burden. And one of the best ways to do this is by taking an honest measurement of where you really are. Saying accurately, truly, this is who I really am. 
But it's not only that. It's not only assuming that we've already arrived, but it's, uh, there's another way that we do this. Looking backwards can also keep us from taking an honest measurement of ourselves. Look back at 13. Go back to your Bible. Look at verse 13. He says this, I forget what is behind, and then I do what? I reach forward to what's ahead. I forget what's behind. You know, looking backwards is actually dangerous for a couple of reasons, for two reasons. One of them is that we can be so uh, consumed with our past spiritual success. Some of you might be living off of some kind of past spiritual high, some past amazing decision that you've made. And you've actually even probably talked to people like this. Like every time that they talk to you about what they have done for Christ, everything's in the past tense. Everything just kind of used to happen in in, in the back. So uh, when Danielle and I uh, first were married, uh, we got our first apartment. It uh, It was in Durham, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, and uh, this was the first uh, thing that we ever did together. It was our first home. We had just been married a couple of, of months, and so it was so fun for us to put together the house. We were decorating it and furnishing it and all that kind of stuff, and uh, so we had these two big bookshelves, and it was right in between a fireplace in the, probably the most prominent part of our home, and we were trying to figure out together, okay, what goes in the bookshelf? They were, they were huge, so do, do we put books there? Do we put some art there? Are we going to put pictures of family or something like this? Well, I left the room for a little while. And when I came back into the room, Danielle had a box open with her high school volleyball trophies. (laughs) I'm, I'm not lying. And she was putting them up on the bookshelf. And I was like, babe, what are you doing? This is, this is kind of weird. Now, I want to, there's a little bit of a side note here so you don't think we're all the way weird, okay? Danielle was an amazing volleyball player. And she had a ton of high school volleyball trophies. Um, and and to, to her credit, the biggest accomplishment for either one of our lives were those trophies. And so it wasn't weird that she was putting them up, uh, up there uh, for a display. You know, Danielle and I laugh about that moment all the time. But listen to this. If she had put those trophies in the most prominent place of our home, it would be a little bit like Danielle was saying that she wants her past accomplishment to be the most prominent thing in our new life together, right? Friends, so many of us live the Christian life this way. You know, we can't run that fast because we're wearing all of the medals from our previous races, We're consumed with past achievement. And and look, we need to praise God for what he's done for us in the past. But we need to know that past spiritual achievement is only training for what's ahead. Think about that. Past spiritual achievement, it's only training for what's ahead of you. So keep your eyes forward. Look ahead. But you know, there's also one other way, a very dangerous way for us to look backwards. And it's focusing on our failures. You know, as your worship pastor, I can think of a few moments that I would love to forget. Um, I've had a a bunch of them. One of them that comes to mind is uh, as I was leading a song about a year ago, it was a really, I was giving some kind of passionate exhortation. I'm sure I had my hands up in the air like this. The song had already started, so I gave just one more minute of exhortation before we were getting ready to sing. And I said this with probably my hands out, I said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be praised. 
and then we sang. Now listen, I would love to forget that moment, but you were all there and you remind me of that moment. Some of you have talked to me about that moment. You know, there is, there, there's been some embarrassing moments, but there have also been some really serious moments in my past, in your past, that you would love to forget about. You're probably the same. And it's not just that you are saddened by those failures, you're actually possibly crippled by them, debilitated by them when you think about them. You know, all over the Bible, we're told to look backwards and remember what we were like without Christ. This morning, Ephesians chapter 2, we read it just a few moments ago. What we were like without Christ. What we were like in our sin. And it is wise for us to go back and look and remember. But friends, there is a way to remember the past, but at the same time forget it. And I actually think it has so much to do with the way that we think about the gospel. And so I want to show you what I mean by that by looking at the second verse for us, a hymn that we love singing here called Before the Throne of God Above. So we're going to put that up and talk through what we mean. So it's up on the screen. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on who? To look at him, to look at Christ and pardon me. You know, this hymn is spot on. Do you ever feel like this? Like Satan has the controller in the replay room of your mind. And what he does is he takes that memory and he just kind of puts it there and he's he puts it there and then what does he do? He presses play. And you just see it all over again. All over again those moments that you would love to forget. And what happens when that moment? He tempts you to despair. And then as it's played, you have fresh waves of guilt. And you're there. Just in a moment, you're there again. But so I want to ask you, what does the song tell us to do? What does the song exhort us to, to do? It says, look to Christ who made an end of all of your sin. You know, you're not saying there in that moment. You are not saying in that moment that my sin is not that big of a deal. You're not saying in that moment that it wasn't that bad. What you're saying in that moment is it, it was such a big deal. It was such a big deal that it caused the sinless Savior to have to go to the cross to die in my place. And then what you're saying to Satan and despair and to guilt, you're saying, you're right. You're right. I did every one of those things. I did all of it. But listen, you look to Christ and you say, the sinless Savior died for me. The sinless Savior died for me. And I don't have to replay that guilt. What you're saying is you're right. Friends, Satan wants to humiliate you. But God in his grace wants to humble you. He wants to humble you so that you run to the cross and remember that the only way that you're saved, the only way you're clean is by running to him for complete forgiveness and freedom. So today, if you are debilitated by sin in your past, such that you find it hard to run the race right now, I want to encourage you, believe the gospel in a fresh way today. Go to God. 
We want to pause here and I want to just ask anyone that's here today that's not a Christian. So maybe you've come and you, you're joining us today. You know that you're not a Christian. We want to, first of all, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. And you know, this idea of getting rid of our guilt is really a hot topic today. I read an interesting blog this past week. It was a self-help blog on how to get rid of your guilt. And one of the things that the blogger said is that your problem is that you need to break up with your guilt. So your problem is this, that you need to go take your guilt to a coffee shop, have a DTR. It's not you, it's me. We need to talk about this. And then what you need to say is, we're breaking up for good. But you know, you and I both know that the problem is that if I try to break up with my guilt on Monday, what's going to happen on Tuesday? It's going to be there again. Friends, I want you to consider that the only the Christian gospel, only the Christian gospel answers how we can permanently deal with debilitating guilt. You might be here today because you're trying to get rid of that guilt. You know, we believe here that our sin debt to God is too great to just be paid off by some kind of mental breakup. You know, the only way that we can be clean before God is for the blood of Jesus to wash away our sin. I want you to look, go back to your Bible, look at verse 9. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says this, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. I have no way of getting righteousness in myself. But one that is through faith in Christ. Friends, if you are trying to make yourself right, if you're trying to get yourself clean by breaking up with your guilt, that's going to be a spiritual cul-de-sac. You're never going to get anywhere. The only way to do this is through faith in Christ. That's the only way we're made clean. So friends, trust Christ, call on him today to make you clean. You know, we've talked about how we need to take an honest measurement of ourselves uh, as we think about the Christian life. But now I want us to think about the motivation for running the Christian life. And the next line that you fill in there is grace is the best motivation for the Christian life. Grace is the best motivation for the Christian life. You know, every endeavor in life needs some sort of motivation to keep it going. It might just be something like, I'd like to fit into those clothes again. Or it might be some kind of running or strength goal. Maybe it's, I want to lead this group of people with excellence. I want to finish the year in uh, financially good shape. Every goal needs something in the engine room that's going to keep it going, especially because of this. Because every goal is probably going to be difficult. You're going to get to that last two miles and you're like, I don't want to run those last two miles, right? You've got to have a goal in front of you. I don't want to lead these people with excellence right now. You've got to have some kind of goal in front of you. Well, it's the same with Paul. And he says in verse 12, what's motivating him? What's keeping him going? Look at your Bible, verse 12. I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So what's motivating Paul in the Christian life? life? Paul says this, I'm motivated by Christ's pursuit of me. Paul looks back over his life and he sees Christ pursuing him. He looks back at the Damascus road and he says, Christ pursuing me. He looks at all of the men and the women that have been investing in him, training him, and he says, Christ pursuing me. He looks at the, the, the fire in his gut 
to spread the fame of Christ through churches all over the world. And he says, Christ pursuing me. All of it is Christ pursuing me. God's been coming after me. And what does that pursuit of Christ lead him to do? Look at what it says. He says, I then make every effort. I pursue my goal because he's been coming after me. You know, what he's not saying here is, I pursue Christ so that he will take hold of me. No, he's saying, since I've been taken hold of, I want to take hold of him more and more. I want to run after him. He's not saying he's going to earn his salvation. Look, he's saying, I'm responding to my salvation. This is Paul worshiping. Friends, we have, when we have a, a really good understanding of grace, we understand that it transforms us from a group of people that used to see following Christ as drudgery to pure joy. When we really understand transforming grace, we understand that it takes all of this duty that we used to look at and then see it as delight. All of the the have-tos, I looked at it and I used to think they're have-tos. Now they turn into want-tos, Christian want-tos. You know, I was amazed, actually more amazed (laughs) than anyone else that Danielle said yes to being my wife. Especially after I just threw her under the bus for uh, that last illustration. I knew it was grace that she said yes to me, to being my wife. And I was so filled with joy that I got a bride like her that it created a longing in me to know her more and more. You know, I was not thinking on our wedding day, man, Danielle is uh, lucky to have me. Maybe other than just in decorating, but other than that... She, I wasn't thinking, she's lucky to have me. I was thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful I get Danielle. But what if, what if I started thinking, man, I'm pretty great at decorating houses. Uh, She's pretty lucky to have me uh, as her husband. You know what would probably start happening is that I would lose a longing to pursue her because I would be so wrapped up in how great I am for her. I'd probably start to not really want to pursue her. Look, if you look at the Christian life this way, like I've done a whole lot for God, he's pretty lucky to have me on the team, then it shows you don't really understand grace. Grace leads me to say this, I can't believe that he pursued me. I can't believe I'm his child. Duty is then transformed into delight. All of those have-tos are transformed into these Christian want-tos. But just in case you think that this is all happening in Paul because we are watching the most driven man that's ever walked the face of the earth. Maybe this is like the Steve Jobs of Christianity. I want to read to you a few passages where we see Paul talking about where energy comes from where his energy comes from. The, these are going to be up on the screen. Three different references, and I think that you need to, maybe you even want to jot these down and think about this later on, okay? Philippians chapter 1. Look at this first one. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Who's completing it? He is. God is. Philippians 2, 13. We've already looked at this. For it is God who is what? He's working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He's doing the work. Colossians 1, 29, I labor for this, striving with all of his strength. <laughs> it's not 
Paul's strength, his strength, that he powerfully works inside me. Friends, do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying every aspect of the race is from God, all of it. It's all grace. Grace to call you, grace to motivate you, grace to give you energy, grace to keep you striving even when you're weary. It's all grace. So praise him. Praise him for the grace that's at work in you today. So we've, uh, we've said that we need to take an honest measurement of our life. We need to be motivated by grace. Now I want us to turn and think about what it means to be mature in our walk with Christ. And, th- and this next fill in the blank is maturing Christians grow in Christ and think like Christ. Maturing Christians grow in Christ and they think like Christ. Look at what it says in verse 15. If you will, go back to your Bible. Look at verse 15. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal it to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Now, we've already seen that all Christians run, but I think it's really important for us to remember that not all running is wise running. Not all of it is mature running. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. I think these words are going to be up on the screen too. Verse 26, so I don't run like one who runs aimlessly. I don't box like somebody that's just hitting the air. Paul didn't want there to be any unfocused, aimless energy in his walk with Christ. He wanted to know, I'm running the right race in the right way to get the prize that I'm after, the prize that I want. Uh, This past summer, our family spent a lot of uh, evenings and weekends at the YMCA pool. And Danielle decided that she wanted to uh, start learning how to uh, to, to swim laps. And I, I was going to join her. I kind of did, but I mostly just read and I, I sat on the sidelines. But she wanted to give some energy to this. And as we were starting the summer, we looked like this just jumbled mess of arms and feet going from one end to the next. There was exercise, but it wasn't very efficient. And then we started going on the evenings where they had swim practice for like the little, like the little, little kids, okay? And so we went there and Danielle acted like she was reading a book on the side, but what she was really doing was listening to this coach, okay? (laughs) And as the coach talked, the, the coach would say, okay, you gotta put your head here, you have to breathe this way, your arms need to go like this, your feet need to do this. And as Danielle listened to that, she actually became a lot better at swimming laps. I, not so much, because I didn't put it in effect, but she got a lot better at swimming laps. She needed to understand what it meant to not have aimless energy. You know, uh, why do we say that? Well, I think that Paul says something really similar to that here. And he's saying that the path to maturity in Christ isn't just any kind of running, any kind of energy. He's saying there needs to be purposeful running. And he says two things, twofold, okay? Maturing Christians grow in Christ And then they also think like Christ. So I want us to look again at what Paul says in verse 10. Just kind of go back, look at verse 10. We already said this, but I just want to draw your attention to what something he's saying here. He wanted to grow in the knowledge of Christ, but don't just think that he wanted to get a list of facts about Christ. He says, I want to know Christ, but it's not just lists of facts that he's after. Look at what he says. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. 
I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to his death. There's cross confirmation in my life. I want to be cross conformed to his death. You know, when you love somebody, just having a list of information about them is not going to do, right? You want the experience of being close to them, of understanding what those things you know about them, how they kind of get into action. I, I, I kind of had something like this a couple weeks ago with my daughter. I knew that my daughter loved live music, and I knew that my daughter loved Ben Rector's music, okay? But I didn't know, and I was not ready for how awesome it would be to get to watch my daughter enjoying a Ben Rector concert, okay? As he played some of these songs, I, she just started dancing. It was awesome. She would dance. And then she would sing a song, and then he would sing a song that she knew. And she would kind of tilt her head back and start singing at the top of her lungs. And, and, and it, was it was awesome for me to get to watch her experience that. You know, I think that this is what Paul means when he says, I want to know Christ. He's not after a list. He's after a person. He's not after just a list of things. He's after a person. But I want us to see one other thing that we see here. And it's a little bit more difficult to see in the text. So if you will, look at verse 15. He says, therefore, let all of us who are mature, look at what the word he uses there. Think this way. Everybody who's mature needs to think this way. So now I'm going to invite you to go back, flip over a page, Philippians chapter 2. We've already heard a sermon about this, but Paul is using this word think in a really intentional way. And I want us to think about why he's using it, okay? Words are actually up on the screen too. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, sorry, we are in verses 1 through 4. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by... Here it is, same word, thinking the same way. Having the same love, united in spirit, get ready for it, next word, same word. Intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, not only for, uh, I'm sorry, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, everyone should look out for, not for only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, Adopt the same attitude, same word right there, as that of Christ Jesus. So every one of those phrases comes from this same word that he uses here when he says the word think. So what is Paul saying? I think that he's saying that the path to Christian maturity isn't just growing in knowing about Christ, but it's actually following the example of Christ. To grow in maturity isn't just growing to know things about him. It's actually following him, following his example, having the same mind as him. So we have to ask this question, what kind of mind did Christ have? Well, he had a mind that led him to not hold on to his rights. Think about this. He didn't hold on to his rights. He had a mind that led him to take on the form of a servant, lowering himself all the way down from equality with God all the way down to death on a cross. And why? Why would he do that? Well, look at what it says in the text, that he was considering the interests of others more important than his own interests. He was living, he was dying for others. He was modeling 
a life of humble sacrifice. So when Paul uses the word think here in our passage, it's not just a throwaway word. It's a word that's pregnant with meaning. And we need to hear Paul again. He did it in chapter 2. He's turning to us again here. Chapter 3, turning to us and saying this same thing. Do you orient your life in this way, Christian? Is this genuine Christianity for you? Or do you think that this is just kind of an add-on for the super spiritual Christians? You know, I think one of the reasons that Paul writes to us and to them is that we have such a propensity to turn inward, don't we? There's such a propensity to turn inward. And it's almost, and we mostly do this because we believe that there's a scarcity of resources. So we think that uh, there, there's, a, there's not enough time resources, there's not enough money resources, there's not enough energy resources, I don't have enough, and so what do we do? Once we believe that there's scarcity of resources, I start to shrink back. And I, don't, I, I, I know that so many of us, we feel frayed at the edges, we feel spent up, we feel exhausted, but I want to encourage you in the way that Paul encourages us in this passage. Christ wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for the interests of others. Listen to this. He didn't use all of the resources at his disposal to make his own life easy. He used them to serve the people around him. That's what he means when he says, think like Christ. You know, as you hear me, you might be thinking to yourself, I want to walk the life of Christian maturity I want to do this. I really want to grow, but I don't know where to start. I don't even know what to do. I want to give you right now, just very quickly, four areas. If, if you were to start to think how to piece together Christian maturity, I want to give you four areas. You could just jot them down, go back later today, maybe think about them. The first one is this, Bible intake. Bible intake. And then maybe next to that, if you want to jot down 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. You know, you've probably heard those words before, but if you're struggling with Bible intake, growing in reading the Word of God, I want to encourage you to go meditate on those words today because they tell you how God means to equip you for every good work. He's going to encourage you. He's going to correct you. He's going to do so many different things, and it's all going to come to you through taking in the Word of God, Bible intake. The next one is Christian community. Christian community. I want to say this to you in two ways, okay? I want to say it to you first in a negative way, but then I'm going to say it to you in a positive way, okay? The, the negative way is this, that neglecting the grace of gathering in large and small groups here at Brack, Brook Hills is a fast-track way to spiritual immaturity. Let me say it again. If you neglect gathering together, large group, small group, if you neglect that, that's going to be a fast-tracked way to spiritual immaturity. But now, let me say it the positive way, okay? God has so much good growth for you planned around the ordinary means of gathering together with the body. It's so ordinary, isn't it? We just walk in here, you're just listening, you're singing, you're talking, you're praying. It just feels so ordinary when you gather uh, for your small group. But look, God has good growth intended for you in those ordinary means. The next area is evangelism. I want to give you a phrase with this evangelism just to think about this, okay? God has put people that are near you and far from God 
in your life so that you will share the gospel with them. God has put people that are near you and far from God in your life so that you'll share the gospel with them. You just think about what Christ did when he lived on earth. He loved sharing the good news of the kingdom with people. And so how should we think that we're going to grow spiritually if we don't follow Christ in that same way, in evangelism? The fourth area is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Pastor Matt uh, says to us often that God has put things in you that we need. God's put spiritual gifts in you that we all need. And it's not just our needs, though, that get met when you use your spiritual gifts. It's your faith that gets built up. Your maturity is grown when you use your spiritual gifts. So I want to encourage you, just think about those four areas. Go home today, meditate on how you might grow by giving more time to those areas. Okay. So we've talked about what it means to mature, what a Christian maturity looks like. And I want us to finally look at um, the people that we're supposed to follow, a a, a model to follow, how we're following mature Christians. The last uh, fill in the blank, it's going to be up on the screen, is follow and become a model for this kind of running. You know, one of the things I love about this passage is that Paul doesn't expect us to piece together the Christian life by ourselves. He says, I want you to follow models that will display this kind of Christian ambition Look at what it says in verse 17. Go back in your Bible. He says this. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay close, careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. You know what Paul is saying there, it's pretty clear. I want, you, I want to follow Christ. I want to follow his examples. I want to lay my life down for other people. And then I want you to look at what I'm doing, and I want you to follow the same way. But it's not just me. I want you to follow anybody that's doing the exact same thing. Now, why does Paul say this? I think he knows that we usually end up looking like the people that we follow, don't we? We usually end up looking like the people that we're we're following after. Have you ever had an amazing boss or a really, like an an awesome parent, maybe a great coach? What, What happens? Usually you end up looking like them. Their influence on you is life changing. And Paul knows that there are some things in the Christian light that can't just be taught. They have to be caught, right? You catch them by being around somebody like that. But after this encouragement to pay careful attention, he moves on to say, stay away. So so there's some people you need to look at. There's some people you need to follow. But then there are other people that I want you to not follow, to not look at. Look at what he says in verse 18 and 19. Look at your Bible. For I've often told you, and now say this again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame. They're focused on earthly things. So a couple things that I want us to note here. It seems like this group of people have at some point professed faith in Christ. You know, Paul probably wouldn't shed tears for this group of people. He probably wouldn't. Uh, warn the church of their influence if they hadn't at some point been a part of this, uh, this fellowship there in Philippi. And we see three things that he says to them. The first one is that God is their stomach, then they glory in their shame, and that they're focused on earthly things. So, so then what does that mean? I think that he's saying that this group of people only thinks about what makes them happy. What will please them immediately? 
Their God is their appetite. They have to feed their appetite all the time. Whatever they want, they get. So much so now, listen to this, that they have zero shame in their pursuit of their appetite. And they actually want to celebrate what they should be ashamed of. You know, it kind of makes me think about what a one-year-old birthday party is like. Have you ever been to one of these one-year-old birthday parties? You go and you see a kid and there's a piece of cake or a cupcake or something in front of the kid. And everybody there wants to see how the kid's going to devour it. And usually the kid's a little bit apprehensive. You know, he's kind of touching it like, is this a test? Are you going to like, <laughs> am I going to get in trouble if I go dive in? But then once they realize that they're allowed to just dive in and devour this thing, they kind of face plant into the, uh, the piece of cake, right? And you have icing, you have cake going all over the walls. Now, let me ask you this. What keeps adults from doing this same thing? Shame. <laughs> you know, it's weird if I face plant into a piece of cake. That's going to be weird. I shouldn't do that, Right? Friends, we live in a culture that actively celebrates what we should be ashamed of. And here are the two things they say. They say, dive in. They say, do whatever you want. And now listen to this. I'm afraid that when something becomes normalized in our culture, that we can easily become desensitized to it in the church. Let me just say that one more time to you. When something is so just normal in our culture, we just laugh at it. When it's normalized in our culture, we can become so desensitized to it in the church. Oh, friends, let's pray to God for help in the things to never indulge in what the culture sees as normal. But notice just one more word of caution about identifying this kind of action in other people. In other people. Notice what Paul says as he's telling them about this group of people. He says he's telling them through tears. You know, there's, there's no victory dance happening here as he delivers this word. He's filled with compassion. He's filled with tears for them. Why? Because this is sobering news. He knows that their end is destruction. Their end is separation forever from God, and that's nothing to gloat about. You know, if you are ready today to kind of press the DEFCOM 4 button on somebody else, you're looking at their life, and you're like, man, I'm identifying things like that in other people's life. I want to encourage you to just consider for a moment, have, have you been moved to tears over that brother and sister first? Have you prayed for them All of the things that you're identifying about them, have you first been moved to tears and then moved to pray for them, that God would deliver them from it? I want us to think just about the drastic contrast as we end here that Paul is setting up. One life ends in destruction, the other one ends in heaven. And then he says this, if heaven is your forever home, then I want you, Christian, to live like that now. Even when you're living abroad, we know that heaven is where our true citizenship is. Because one day we're going to be there. One day we're going to take up final residence there. I want you just to listen to what C.S. Lewis says uh, about this in Mere Christianity. I think this is going to be up on the screen. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians ha- have largely ceased to think about the other world where we're going that they have become so ineffective in this one. You know, everything that I've said to you this morning 
is aimed at helping us think about running the Christian race. Taking an honest measurement of ourselves, grace-filled motivation, maturing in Christ, following the right models. And some of you, you hear that and you go, yes, I want to go, I want to run. But I think that there's probably another group of you that are here this morning that you just feel like, oh my goodness, I feel like such a failure. Like you look backwards and all you see about your running in the past has just been failure. I want you to notice one more thing that Paul says in verse 16. One last thing, and we're going to close. He says this in verse 16, that we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Now, when Paul says that, he's not saying, I want you to live out whatever truth you have. <laughs> like it's just some kind of modernist way of thinking about truth. Just do whatever you want. No, what he's saying to us here is that he, he's saying, I want you just to take the next step of Christian obedience. Whatever's next, don't try to run a marathon tomorrow. Just do whatever is next. So in light of that, I want to offer four exhortations to four groups of people. I know that I am not going to hit every person in this room when I say this. And I'm just praying that God would give grace for whatever I say, that you would just take it and apply it to, to your own life. But I want to give you four things, four categories, four groups of people to think about as we apply this. First one is to dads. Dads, if you look back and you look at your time leading family devotions and you just see failure, <laughs> you just see all of the things that I haven't done, all the things I want to do I haven't done, I haven't walked with Christ, I haven't led my family in the way that I want to, then I want to encourage you to just think about this. Guess what? Tonight is a new night. <laughs> Obey what you know. Grow how you can. Take the psalm of the day. Just read it to your family and say, let's pray together. Just grow how you can. Moms, second group, moms. If you are anxious and depressed about how little time you feel like you have in the word of God, I want you to be encouraged to just take time that God has given you, however that is, wherever that is. It might just be in the car. It might be at work. It might be in doing all kinds of things, running family around, whatever it is, and to take a verse and to just spend the week meditating on it. Turn it over in your mind. Chew on it. Gnaw on it. Think about it. Just do whatever God has given you to do. Just take that next step of Christian obedience. Third area, single people. If you feel like, man, I am spending time with lots of people that don't help me long for heaven. I just see a lot of people around me, and I'm, they're not helping me long for heaven that much. Then I want to encourage you just to look around the room right now. There are tons of models to follow in this church. So go find one and it, it, talk to us. We would love to give you an idea of who you could model your life after, okay? The, the last one, the fourth one is teenagers or any young people in the room. You know, you might feel like, you might think, I followed Christ years ago. I made a decision to follow him. I, I, I am trying to follow him, but I see so little spiritual growth in my life. I want to encourage you to set a goal to read one chapter of the Bible. One chapter of the Bible every single day. And just listen to what Paul is saying to us from, uh, from Philippians 3.16. Do what's next. Take the next step of Christian obedience. Let's pray together.